if you can spell teacher, you are invited. I like it. I might steal it uh, and use it over the course of the next couple of weeks to remind you and bug you about signing up and being a part of our teacher's workshop, study workshop on the 25th, and also to encourage that you would come. In fact, I would say if you can't spell teacher, we'll work on that too, um, but we would love to have you, uh, have you with us. Welcome to our visitors. I know that's already been said. It's my first time up tonight, and so I want to join those who've welcomed you, and thank you for being here. To our members as well, it's been a great day. I know that our young people have spent the day together. I'm thankful for Brendan and Savannah and for others who are helping with uh, their uh, encouragement and their strength, and particularly today for um, dealing with them so moms and dads could have a Sunday afternoon uh, without uh, a lot of children around. So appreciate that. Um, when the New Testament writers searched for Old Testament examples of prayer, this man's name rose to the top of the list. His name was found in the New Testament as a, a benchmark on how to pray. Our text tonight is 1 Kings 19, but I want to start in James 5. So turn with me to James 5 and notice what James says about Elijah. Now, the occasion of prayer being talked about in James 5 is not the same occasion that we're going to talk about in 1 Kings 19, but it is the prelude to it. It's the introduction to why Elijah is in the state that he's in and dealing with the things that he's dealing with. The Bible says, we'll just read the the text uh, starting in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? So he is to sing. If anyone among you is sick, then he must call for the elders of the church and they may, they may pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up if he has committed sins, and they shall be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Now, that's the text about prayer that's sort of ambiguous or general uh, as to what it will do and what place it holds in our lives and what place it held in the early church. But then notice the very next next verse. How am I going to illustrate this to the early church? How are they going to understand the power of prayer and the purpose of it and why they should follow it? He says, like preachers are known to do, let me give you an example. So verse 17, Elijah was a man with the nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. And then he prayed again, the sky poured out rain, and the earth produced its fruit. It's as if the readers were saying, okay, I really don't buy into this idea that prayer is that powerful. I don't think it'll work the way that you're saying it will. It'll heal the sick. It'll forgive sins. Show me. And without missing a beat, without altering at all, James says, just think about Elijah. You all know him. He was a man with a like nature to us, who's like us. And he prayed, and it was effective. And even today, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much see the subject matter at hand tonight in first kings chapter 19 if you want to go over there you can now we'll spend the rest of our time in that great old testament text tonight is introduced as i noticed a moment ago as i mentioned a moment ago by this prayer for rain or prayer for drought and then prayer for rain all of that takes place in first Kings 17 and 18 now the return of rain coincided with or was around the same time that Elijah was also victorious in defeating the 400 prophets of Baal on the top of Mount Carmel proving that God 
is supreme and that he was a true prophet. And, and uh, as you might would say, they lived happily ever after, but they didn't because chapter 19 comes. And Elijah finds himself in a very depressed, despondent state. In fact, our prayer tonight that we're going to introduce and then talk more about in, in at least one detail on Wednesday evening is that prayer of depression. What I find interesting that while James 5 is not directly about 1 Kings 19, he uses a phrase that's extremely important for us if we're going to identify with Elijah in our prayer lives. He is a man with a like nature to ours. That means then that Elijah was a man who got hungry and tired. He, he had experienced joy and happiness. He became despondent and confused and discouraged and even depressed. And yet, as a man like that, he's our example of prayer. That to me is extremely powerful and, and, and informative as we work through this series on, on great prayers of Scripture. He wasn't the only one, by the way, to share our nature and to pray about it. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8, that we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction when we came, when, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even to die. Paul was a man of like nature, like ours. Moses in Numbers eleven fourteen said, I am alone not able to carry all of these people because it's too burdensome for me. And then he says, so if you are going to deal thus with me, kill me at once. Moses was a man who liked nature of ours. Jonah, chapter 4 and verse 3 of the book that is titled with his name, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. There are four prayers in Scripture that pray, if you couple those three with the one we're going to talk about tonight, that we're at the point of death because of discouragement and they prayed prayers of depression. Now, I don't know in a course of 12 or 13 lessons together on prayer if there's any one more fitting for the time and culture that we live in than the one tonight. There are people who deal with distress and difficulty and problems of the things that we run through in the announcements on, on Sunday morning or on Sunday night, they, they don't even touch the hem of the garment, do they? Of the struggles that we're facing in our life? Of the discouragement that we feel, the problems that we have, of the disconnect maybe sometimes that, that exists in families, of the discouragement that exists in the church, of, 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 of being put down and looked down upon at school or at work. But I think sometimes we're afraid to pray in moments of depression. Because somehow if, if, if we were stronger, if we had more faith, if we had believed God a, a, a little bit sooner, then maybe we wouldn't be in the condition that we're in. If nothing else is, is garnered from, from considering these things tonight and even Wednesday night, understand that even in the midst of depression, God invites and entertains prayer. And, and not necessarily to fix it. To move beyond it. But that's simply what we do as God's people. 
in the setting tonight uh, in, in, in chapter 19, and we, we could spend all night really here in the text and, and the story that it contains, we're introduced to the, to the major uh, characters in verses 1 and 2. There, there are four people that are four individuals, four, four beings that, that come to, to mind. First, there's, there's Ahab and Jezebel, there's Elijah and God. That's a lot of Elijah's story is based around those four beings. Um, and in this occasion, we have Ahab being, again, the, the sort of behind-the-scenes, um, a passive, uh, complaining, grumbling ruler, and we find Jezebel, his wicked and evil wife, leading the way in the fray. The Bible says that Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. Can you imagine the report? And, and the temper tantrum that might have been thrown with it. He's killed all of our prophets. Do you know what he's done? Do you know what he's accomplished? you know what God now looks like in the eyes of the people? Now there's a good chance that all Ahab was doing was running his mouth and complaining. But he was running his mouth and complaining to a person who wouldn't just run her mouth and complain. She'd do something about it, right? So we find out that what she says to Elijah is, listen, the Lord do so to me if, if I don't kill you. Yeah, maybe it's a side note, but I, but I'll make it. There are there are individuals who just like to complain. They just like to, to to mouth, as we might say. They just like to throw things out there. You realize that when you do that, somebody else is affected by that. Somebody else responds to that. Somebody else moves on that. Somebody else thinks something. Somebody else will go a little bit farther than you would because they'll do more than complain. They'll act. Perhaps our, our discussion of Jezebel and, and Ahab could take a, a different turn tonight and we could consider the power of our words and, and the negative influence as we, as we spew it, even about things that we really know nothing about, but we'll save that for another time. So what did Elijah do? Look at verses 3 and 4, and I promise we're not going to go through the entire chapter like this. We would be here a long, long time. The Bible said he was afraid, and he arose and he ran. In fact, he ran, the Bible says, for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there. And he himself went a, a day's journey into the wilderness and came down and sat under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die. And here's his prayer. Is it enough now, O Lord, to take my life? For I am no better than my fathers. Look at the progression. He, he was afraid. He ran. In fact, he ran as far as he could go. The Bible says he went to Beersheba. According to Judges 20 and verse 1 and a few other Old Testament passages, Beersheba is noted as the, the southernmost point of the land of Israel. The, the phrase from Dan to Beersheba is used throughout the Old Testament to indicate from the more, nor, northernmost point to the end. We might would say from New York to L.A., that's what they meant by this. He goes as far as he can go, but did you notice he goes even further, doesn't he? He leaves his servant there, come back to that in a moment, and he goes another day's journey in the wilderness and he sits down under the shade of a lone tree and he's all by himself and he says, God, just kill me. It's not perplexing to us if we didn't read 17 and 18. When you read 17 and 18, what's Elijah doing? Why does he feel that way? I believe that's human nature to respond in that fashion to a man in this depressive state. Just look what you've done and look what God did for you and through you. And now you're going to feel sorry for yourself. What I'm so thankful for is that when he felt that way, there was nobody else around. Because that's probably what we would have said had we been there. But it's not what God said. And it's not what God did. 
Perhaps we could take a lesson, again, not the emphasis entire point of the lesson, perhaps we could take a lesson from God's response and realize that when someone's in the depths of depression, that is absolute reality in their life. And telling them they shouldn't be there, and it sounds ridiculous for them to be there, and it makes no sense for them to say the things that they're saying, I'm not sure would have ever gotten Elijah out from under the juniper tree. But that's what he did. He, he was afraid. He ran. He, he went even further than, than, he, than he could have gone. And he fell down under the shade of the solitary juniper tree. And there he prayed. Tonight, just briefly, I want us to consider his perspective. And we will spend most of our time here. And then we'll consider the answer. Okay? Consider the perspective from which he prayed. And, and, and this will be the first time, I think, in our series of discussions that Wednesday night will be dramatically different from Sunday night. Because we really want to look at just a couple of thoughts uh, as it pertains to our prayer life in the midst of our despondency and our discouragement and our depression that, that we need to keep in mind. So we need to give a, a, a fuller picture. Sometimes the idea is, considering the perspective of Elijah, sometimes the idea is this when we pray, get your mind right and pray. You ever heard somebody say, I just can't pray? I'm just not in a frame of mind to pray. I, I just can't utter those words. I just can't put my thoughts together. My mind's not right. Until I get my mind right, I can't pray. Remember what Paul told the Philippians in Philippians chapter 4? Listen to the order of this. He says in verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, and of good repute, think on these things. We generally flip that, don't we? If I'm going to pray that it might bring peace, I've got to first think right. But the Bible doesn't reveal it that way. The Bible says in the midst of your confusion, in the midst of your depression, in the midst of your discouragement, start praying and cast that on God. And guess what you'll be able to do soon? Soon you will be able to think like you need to think and reflect like you need to reflect. It's not the opposite. It's not get your, your mind right and pray. It's pray that your mind and heart might be settled. And then and only then will you be able to think of those things that are right. So consider this perspective from which Elijah prays. Number one, he was coming off a great victory. He's coming off a great victory. Now, I often heard it said that weakness follows victory. That is, that our, our weakest moments are after our, the, the, the pinnacle of our, our existence. And, and you look in the, in the, in the, in the life of Christ and the, his baptism and the voice of God speaking from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. And we often point out it was upon the heels of that that he went into the wilderness to be tempted of Satan. Because after that mountaintop moment, there would be a valley of discouragement that perhaps Satan would take advantage of. Now, I know that's true, and I've said that before. I've never really understood the logic behind it, though personally i've never really been able I, I get the picture and i understand that it happened in the life of christ so i accept it i just know that i understood it until i read this illustration illustration of a mountain climber and i don't know if, if if you've ever hiked to 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 great heights literally not not you know famously if you ever hiked to great heights a fourteen thousand foot mountain you know those who who scale mountains like that will often say that coming down from the mountain is harder than going up. You don't know why? Because going up, there's, there's, there's focus. 
and intention. I've been training for this. I've been working for this. You conserve your energy and you conserve your water and you breathe like you're supposed to breathe. And you watch every step because you know how dangerous the terrain might be. And then you get to the top and all that energy that's been expelled is now gone. And you've got to get down somehow. And so now relax without as much adrenaline, perhaps not as careful, certainly with not as much energy. Now you have to make your way back down that mountain. And perhaps that's what we mean by our weakest moments come after our greatest victories. One, one, one writer said it, said it this way. He said, the excess of joy or excitement must be paid for by subsequent depressions. While the trial lasts, the strength is equal to the emergency. But when it's over, natural weakness claims the right to show itself. When we're in the midst of difficulty and problems, we're in the midst of, uh, of, of confusion and heartache and, 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 tra- and tragedy and crisis, we match it with intensity because that's the kind of people we are. That's what we trained for, right? That's why we took on the whole armor of God. And that's why we saturated our minds with the word of God. But let that moment be over. and Let us be victorious over that time. And the natural progression of our existence starts to play out. You, you can't be on top of the mountain every day of the week, every week of the year. And so eventually the descent's going to have to come and that's when difficulty might arise. And so he's from the perspective of having experienced a great victory on top of Mount Carmel in chapter 18. Second aspect of this man's perspective was that he wasn't thinking rationally. He really wasn't, wasn't he? He had just defeated 400 prophets of Baal and now he was afraid of one woman. Now, I know she was a dangerous and wicked and evil woman. But that's what he's afraid of. It's not rational. It's not logical. But notice, the text never reveals that's God's message to him. You know why? Because from his perspective, it was absolutely the right response. What else could he do but be afraid? I don't know if Elijah thought in his mind once he defeats the prophets of Baal that Jezebel and Ahab are going to come to their knees in repentance and say, we were wrong, you were right, let's let's serve God and and you will be protected by our our armies and our, our people for the rest of your days. I'm sure he didn't expect on the heels of victory to be pursued in death. But his thoughts were irrational. By the way, in this, He may have ceased to trust, but he didn't cease to pray. He continued to talk to God. Which, by the way, in some of this, and probably should have mentioned this a little earlier, we have to keep in mind, we actually talked about this, I think, the first couple of weeks of our our class together on a Wednesday night. We think of prayer as this constant stream of words. That we have to start and end, and, and, and when a prayer's going on, there have to be constantly words coming out of our, our mouths. I think that's why we pray such short prayers, is because we sort of run out of words for a moment, and so we amen it and, and, and go on our way. When sometimes there can be moments of silence and reflection, meditation, scripture reading, that refocuses our mind, that recenters our thoughts, that we can continue our requests and continue our praises to him. I don't know that you could couch it this way, but it's possible to consider the entire conversation between Elijah and God as a season of prayer, a time of prayer. 
an occasion where he spoke and God spoke back, although we're not looking for that or listening for that today, we are reflecting on what God has revealed as we pray, haven't we? Why else would we pray? God help me, God show me, God tell me, and then move on our way giving no thought to Scripture? What are we asking for? Prayer sometimes, and maybe more times than not, is a conversation. It's a time, it's a moment that I've set aside, that I commune with God and I talk to Him. And some of it includes me speaking audibly, the same words. And some of it comes with my silence and reflection on the things that God has already revealed and the things He will do for me. He wasn't thinking rationally, but he prayed. Number four, number three, rather. He, used, he, he came at it from this perspective, and that is he had separated himself, himself from the strongest relationships that he had. Look at verse three back again. Mentioned we would come back here. He went to Beersheba as far as he could go. He left his servant there, and then he went a day's journey. Now, Jesus is going to mimic this, isn't he? When he goes to the garden, he's going to go and he's going to leave the three and he's going to go a little further away. But Elijah did so and asked to die. Jesus did so and asked not to die. I think there's a difference in those two responses, in those two situations. But his perspective was loneliness, isolation. It's never, never a good thing. For a Christian to be alone. In fact, God didn't create us for that cause and for that purpose and, and in that, that way of thinking. He created the church so we have community. The times that we have to get away, maybe, but to stay there, to live in that environment, to, to separate ourselves is never the way God intended. But his perspective was loneliness. And then finally, he was he was lost in self-pity. Almost, almost find it humorous. That he says to God, it's enough now. Take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. Verse 4. When did we ever see that God asked him to be better than his father's? Was that a self-imposed responsibility he had? Was that an expectation he just thought had to be met because he was Elijah the prophet? But he was wrapped in self-pity and self-absorption. That was his perspective now, I want to think for just a moment about his answer. And we'll just summarize what goes on in the rest of this text. Number one, God allowed time for refreshment. You read verses 5 through 8, and God gave him something to eat. And a second time, he gave him something to eat, and he did so for 40 days and 40 nights. Season, a time of refreshment. You know, the answer to our struggles in life and our confusion and our depression might be not to work more. Not to do more, not to go more, not to say more, but to rest. To allow the mind and body to heal. I mean, in a time where Ahab and Jezebel's ideas and ideals ruled the day, you needed Elijah on the forefront all the time, except he couldn't stay there all the time. Perhaps he only had one Mount Carmel experience in him. And what he needed was 40 days and 40 nights of rest beyond that. So God gave him a time of refreshment. Number two, and this is the most peculiar of the entire chapter, God gave him a time of reflection. Verses 9 through 14 reveal this to us. He asked him, why are you here? 
He said, I'm here because they've torn down your altars and killed your prophets and I'm alone and left and they seek my life. So God said, listen, stand up and watch. And I'm going to cause a great wind to pass and I'm going to cause an earthquake to happen and I'm going to cause fire to pass. And then the Bible says that the Lord was not in any of them. And then a gentle wind came. And he again asked Elijah, what are you doing here? And his answer was the same. I don't know exactly what to make of these passages, but here is at least a thought. Elijah saw God in the fire of Mount Carmel, in the earthquakes of the flood, in the noisiness of of, of miraculous and of conflict and of battle. And I'm convinced, at least on some level, that God wanted Elijah to see, I'm here all the time. You don't have to be at battle and at war and upheaval and and confronting and fighting and, and drawing swords and calling down fire for me to be with you. I'm as real here under the juniper tree as I was on Mount Carmel. He wanted to give him a time of reflection. And then, then, when his answer was the same, he provided for him the remedy. Verses 15 through 21. He said, I'm going to give you some men. I'm going to give you Jehu, and and I'm going to give you uh, Elisha. I'm going to give you Hazel. And what one doesn't do, the other will do. And what the other doesn't do, the other will do. And there are 7,000 not bowed the knee. Listen, his complaint was, I am alone. You know what God easily could have said? Because I think this is the way we interpret 1 Kings 18, or 19, by the way. Elijah says, I'm alone. And God says, sort of in disgust, no, you're not. I've got 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee. That's not what God said to him. He said, I'm alone and I want to die. And God says, you need to rest and you need to eat. You need to see my glory and everything that's around. And let me tell you, if you feel by yourself, I'll give you some more help. Here's your three men by name and a host of others that I'll just lump together in one place. What an amazing answer to a prayer that was full of self-pity and depression. You know what God's not necessarily interested in? God's not necessarily interested in proving to us that our irrational feelings are irrational. He's not so much about telling us that that, that our sadness should always be joyful. What he is about telling us is that I'm here and whatever you need, I'm going to supply it. So once God gave him a time to refresh and God gave him time to reflect, God answered his prayer and he supplied the need that he had from the beginning. I feel all by myself and I'm going to die. In fact, I'd rather die alone than go back and face everybody. And God says, I understand where you're coming from. Let me give you some help. What an amazing, gracious God we served. Depressed? Then pray. Not to fix the problem. But because, friends, that's what we do as Christians. When we're happy, we pray. When we're thankful, we pray. When we're worried, we pray. When we're sick, we pray. When we're healthy, we pray. And when we're depressed, we sure better do the same thing. Pray to God. Now, if you can't pray, there's the real problem tonight. If God won't hear your prayer because sin separated you from him, 
then that, that depressed state that you're in will have to be shouldered by you and you alone or you and a group of people on this earth who really have no better answers for it than you do. So tonight, if you're depressed and discouraged, come to the Lord. Perhaps that the forgiveness of sins through Christ for the first time will change your disposition anyway, and then your, your, your worry and concern will be gone. But maybe it won't. Because becoming a Christian and being baptized for remission of sins does not el- eliminate family issues. It doesn't eliminate health issues. It doesn't em- eliminate the uncertainty of the future, or financial problems, or the, or the loss of a job. What it does is it puts me in a group of people to whom God says, I'm here with you everywhere you go. On top of a mountain, running away in fear, or in your final destination under the broom tree. I'm around. Do you have that assurance tonight? Do you understand that? If not, and we can assist you, we ask you to come to the Lord while we stand and sing.